you want to find your place with me in the book of Luke, we are continuing today the message series entitled The Greatest Story Ever Told, and we're spending most of our time in the Gospel of Luke. Next week, we'll break out of Luke for just a few minutes, and then we'll come back for other messages from uh, the story of Luke. It's interesting what Luke says about why he wrote his Gospel. If you go back to chapter 1 and verse 3, you will see it. What he says is, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write, he says here, an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. And so Luke, the medical doctor, who is a man known for details, he would have been a man known for details, as are medical professionals, uh, wanted to make sure that that there was an account of the life of Jesus that was put together in an orderly fashion. And the reason is in verse 4, that you may know the certainty. You see the words? That you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. In other words, I don't want your foundation to be a shaky, unstable foundation. I want you to be able to see through an orderly presentation of the greatest story ever told, which is the story of the life of Jesus, I want you to be able to know with absolute confidence that what you have seen and what you have heard is true, and you can bank your entire eternal life, your entire eternal destiny on it. And so in chapters 1 and 2, he begins with the birth stories, two specific birth stories, and he runs them parallel to each other. Uh, there's two birth announcements. There's the birth announcement by Gabriel of John to Zacharias. And then there's the birth announcement of Jesus that's given to Mary. There's two birth accounts that run parallel. There's the birth account when John is actually born into the world. And there's the birth account when Jesus actually comes into the world. Both of these babies are miraculous God had to open the womb of Elizabeth for her to be able to give birth. God had to do a miracle in order to produce the Christ child in Mary's womb. Both of these babies are announced. Both of these babies are named before they're born. They were named by God through Gabriel. One came by natural conception. The other came by a supernatural conception. Uh, these two births, intersect in these chapters on one occasion. And that's when Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, and she spends several months with Elizabeth. And so you see these two parallel stories running side by side in these parallel accounts coming together and intersecting each other. It's important for you to remember as you think about these two parallel accounts that John was one to become great after his birth. But what these two parallel accounts tell us is that Jesus was great even before his birth. Obviously, he is the Son of God. One was born a son of man, a son of man. The other was born the Son of God. And so you see these parallel accounts. John is the only one who tells us about the birth. Excuse me, Luke is the only one who tells us about the birth of John. Uh, the other gospel writers, two of the other gospel writers, tell us about the birth of Jesus. But he puts them side by side so that you can check them off and you can see the, the, the things that are alike one another. And then you can see the things that are, that are distinctly different to one another. He's giving us a comparison. He's putting them in an orderly fashion so that we can have a certainty about our faith. We can have a certainty about what we know about Jesus Christ. I want you to pick up the story with me in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And we move from the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth and the announcement about John's birth to the announcement about the birth of Jesus Christ. And we're going to stop several times as we read through these verses before we make some practical points because I want you to, to see some specific things. By the way, one of the most difficult things of the Christmas season is getting people to pay attention. When I was uh, growing up, my parents had a, a, a beautiful clock, a, a wooden uh, clock, a cherry wood clock. It wasn't a, a grandfather clock where you had to pull the, you know, the chains to keep it running. It, it wasn't a battery-operated clock. They didn't have those in those days. 
It was something that was given to them on their, on their wedding day by a family member, and it was intended to be an heirloom, something that they would pass down. And when my mother passed away, uh, she gave it to my sister, and my sister has it sitting on uh, her piano. But what's interesting about that clock is this. Uh, it would chime on the hour whatever hour it was. So if it's 2 o'clock, it chimes twice. If it's 5 o'clock, it chimes five times. If it's midnight or noon, it chimes 12 times. It chimed on the quarter hour, and it chimed on the, on the half hour, and it had a different sound to each of those two so that you would know uh, that it was the quarter hour or the half hour. Now, growing up as a boy, the, the reality is this. I, I don't really hardly ever remember hearing that clock. It was in the house from the time I was born. It was there before I was born. It, it uh, was in the house as long as I can remember. I, I don't ever remember the clock not being in the house. I don't ever remember the clock ever having to be worked on. I don't think it's ever had anybody that had to service that clock. But the thing is, is that it was chiming even if I didn't know it. I had just become so used to it, and most of our family had just become so used to it that we didn't hear the chimes. You know, if we needed to or we wanted to, we could pay careful attention. But most of the time, it was background noise. We didn't even notice it or pay attention. It's a, it's a little bit like people who live next to railroad tracks. <laughs> Have you ever been to visit somebody that lives next to a railroad track? And while you're there, a train goes by, and you think the train's coming through the house. I mean, the train is coming through the front door, and it's going out the back door. And you say to the people whose, whose house it is, did you hear the train? And they say, what? <laughs> what train? What, what train? I didn't hear a train. Oh, did the train just go by? I mean, the details of the story of the birth of Christ are somewhat like that chiming clock or somewhat like those railroad tracks that, you know, we just sort of push them into the periphery, put them into the background. We don't even hardly hear them anymore, but I, I want you to hear these details of this story. Notice verse 26. Now in the sixth month, that's the sixth month from the time that Elizabeth has been told that she would have a baby. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, the same one that came to Zacharias at the temple to tell him that he and his wife were going to have a baby, was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Let's just stop there for a moment. Galilee is not Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem is. That's where all the connected people live. That's where the aristocracy lives. That's where the religious leaders live. You would think that if God were going to send his son, that he might choose to come through some prominent person and through some prominent city and some prominent territory. But what does God do in the sending of his son? He chooses a place called Galilee. That's a territory. That's an area. It would be like us saying uh, Huntington, is, uh, Huntington is the county seat uh, for Cabell. It's a it's a a territory, like Cabell County is a territory. But Nazareth is like Huntington or like Barbersville. It's a, it's a place within that territory. And when you think about Nazareth, it's a place that nobody even knows. I mean, it's an out-of-the-way place. It's three miles from any of the trade routes where people were, you know, bartering and doing business. So if you're going to do that, you had to make a journey to be able to get to those trade routes uh, they say that there were maybe 500 people. I've seen as little as 100 to 200 people who lived in Nazareth. I saw one report, maybe as much as 1,000. If you were to go to Nazareth today, I've been to Nazareth. If you were to go to Nazareth today, uh, it's, it's nothing like the city when Mary and Joseph were living there. I mean, this is an out-of-the-way place. This is a nothing kind of a place. I mean, nobody even knows about it. Did you know that Nazareth is not even mentioned one time in the Old Testament? It's never even mentioned in the Old Testament. And it's mentioned in the New Testament only six times. And it's always associated with the birth of Christ or by identifying Jesus. He's Jesus of Nazareth. So only six times do you find the name. I mean, God is sending his angel, this archangel Gabriel, to make an announcement 
a significant, important announcement, and he sends them to a nowhere kind of a place in a nowhere kind of a territory where the aristocracy doesn't even live. I mean, Lord, if you're going to do a work like this, you're going to do something as significant as this, don't you want to go through Judea and go through the city of Jerusalem? Obviously not. Verse 27, what does Gabriel do? He goes to a virgin Circle the word. That's the first time it's used. Betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. We'll talk about him more next week. Of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. Circle the word virgins. In other words, Luke, the medical doctor who would understand how children come into the world, specifically on two occasions, uses a very specific word that refers to a young man, excuse me, a young woman who has not had sexual relationships with a man. He says she is a virgin. He says it again just so that you don't miss it. She is a virgin. The virgin's name is Mary. You'll notice that he's just driving this point home. Uh, She is betrothed to a man. Now, we sometimes liken betrothal to uh, being a fiancé, having a fiancé. But being betrothed was something far more binding. Uh, When a young lady would turn 12, 13 years of age, uh, two families would get together. The family of of the boy and the family of the girl would get together, and they would agree that their son, their daughter, is going to become husband and wife. You say, oh! How could they ever love each other? Well, they survived for all those centuries doing just fine. Uh, This whole thing of falling in love doesn't always work out so well. You know what I mean? They understood that marriage was more than just a feeling. It was a commitment. And they would get together. They would pay the, the groom's family would pay the bride price. Oh, ladies, don't you love that? Pay the bride price. But then they would live apart from one another. A lot of times they didn't even see each other for the course of at least a year or more until it was time for the wedding. I doubt it's likely that, I doubt it's possible that Joseph and Mary didn't know each other in this small town. Have you been to Barbersville? Everybody knows everybody and just about everybody's related to everybody. Uh, Have you noticed that? I mean, everybody knows everybody. It's a small town. That's the way small towns are. And it's probably true that Joseph and Mary knew each other, but they're only betrothed. He wants you to know that. They're only betrothed. The wedding hasn't happened. What happens? The groom will eventually come, and he'll take his bride away, and they'll go back to his place where he's built a room that's going to be their chambers where they will live And there'll be the consummation of the marriage, and there'll be the wedding feast that takes place. It doesn't take place for a few hours. It takes place for a few days. None of that has occurred. Luke is giving you details. He's telling you things that he wants you to notice. She's a virgin. I've used the word twice. She's only betrothed. She has not wedded this man. I mean, officially, she is committed to him. It would take a divorce in order to break this agreement between these two families. But they have not come together for a wedding and the consummation of that relationship. And if you look over at verse 34, a little later when we think about Mary, it says, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Now notice the wording, Since I do not know a man. Have you read the word know in the Old Testament? He knew his wife, and they bore a son or they bore a child. It's a euphemism for sexual relationships. In other words, Luke, with all of his medical knowledge and understanding, is trying to make sure you know that Mary is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14. And a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. But what kind of a woman will bear that son? A virgin. And Luke says, here it is, two times. I want you to know it. This is the Virgin Mary. Now, the Catholics have this wrong. I don't mean to be ugly or unkind. But they say that Mary was born without sin. 
It was the only way. They call it the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception in Catholic theology does not apply to Jesus. It does apply to Jesus, but specifically it applies to Mary in their theology. For him to be able to have a human body, Mary had to be a sinless person. And that's why they venerate Mary as they do. But that's not at all what the text says. The text says that Mary was a virgin and never says that she didn't that she was without sin, that she wouldn't need a Savior. It just simply says she was betrothed to this man already in this relationship. And when she hears about what's going to happen, she's, she's trying to figure it out. Not only does Dr. Luke understand, but even Mary, this young woman, understands. I mean, I don't even know a man. I've never known a man. How is it going to be true that I could give birth to a child? The virgin birth of Jesus is a core doctrine of the Christian faith that if you abandon it, you cease to have genuine Christianity. And the reason is because for Jesus to be God in the flesh, he could not have a human father. Do you realize that your children are born in the natural way? John was born in the natural way. But do you know what you inherit, what your children inherit when children are born in that natural way? They inherit the sin nature of the father. Adam partook, knowingly, willingly partook of the forbidden fruit and was plunged under sin. And the result is that that nature gets passed down from one generation to the next, from one child born into the world to the next, so that the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For Jesus, to be the God-man, he couldn't have been conceived in the natural way. He had to have a body. He had to have a different nature than you and I have. He had to be God in the flesh. It's called the hypostatic union of the dual natures of Christ. You want to say that together with me? It's called the hypostatic union of the dual natures of Christ. And I can't fully explain all of it to you. Jesus wasn't two distinctly different personalities. They were perfectly blended together so that he was both man and he was God. But the only way that Jesus could live a sinless life was that he have this sinless conception. The only way that Jesus could pay the penalty of our sins is if he didn't have to have his sins atoned for. And so he comes through the Virgin Mary, a woman who's not known a man, sexually known a man, who is only betrothed to this man, Joseph. And she's living in a place that's sort of a nothing kind of a town out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, she's an unheard of woman. And yet God is about to do the greatest work he has ever done. You notice it continues, verse 28, and having come in, now the angel is going to speak to her three times. If you want to mark it, here's the first one. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. He continues, but when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Do you see those words, highly favored? Do you see the word favored? It comes from the root word for grace. She's been graced. God is doing something for her that she doesn't deserve, she's not worthy of, but God is doing it for her. She is being graced. By the way, she is the one receiving the grace, unlike Catholic theology. She is not the dispenser of grace. She is receiving this grace from God in a nowhere place to an unknown woman out here in Nothingville God comes to a woman, a young woman, a woman who's only betrothed to a man and says, I've chosen you. I have graced you. I'm going to do through you something that the world will remember forever and will change this world. I've shown you favor. And when she hears it, she starts thinking about it. Hmm, I wonder what he means by this. Wouldn't you do the same? 
You remember, she's 12, 13, 14. She's in that age bracket. I, I know we, we say don't get married till you finish college and don't be married till you, you know, you're 26 or 28 or you're 30. And that's okay. That's okay. I encourage my kids to wait as long as possible. But remember, Proverbs says to rejoice with the wife of your youth. Now, I'm not suggesting 13-year-olds go get married. This is a different culture. This is a different time. This is a different level of maturity, as you're going to see here in a few moments. And this young woman who's unknown, living in a nowhere kind of place, God comes and says, I've graced you, I've chosen you to be a vessel through which I'm going to do a great work. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb. Here's the second, by the way, verse 30 is the second thing he says to her. Second time he speaks to her. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. He's going to tell you seven things about Jesus, this son. Number one, he shall be called Jesus. The name means God is Savior or God saves John's name means God is gracious. Jesus means God saves. That's the first thing I want you to know about this son, Mary. He'll be called Jesus. He's named by the, by the angel. Number two, he will be great. Number three, and will be called the son of the highest. Number four, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Number five, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Number six, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And if you look at the end of verse 35, therefore also the Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. The angel says seven very specific things. I can't take you through this. We don't have time this morning. But if you go back to the Old Testament, you will find that what the angel is saying to her is, this is a fulfillment of the prophecies you've long been waiting for. This is the Messiah that you've all wanted to come, and you were all waiting to come. And can you imagine it's been 400 years of silence since the closing of the book of Malachi to the opening of the book of Matthew? It's been 400 years of silence. He heaven has been like brass. There's been no prophets coming with a message from God. And suddenly God is moving again. God is about to do something that's going to change individuals' lives and change nations' lives. And he chooses an unknown woman in a virtually unknown place and says, I have graced you and you are going to be the vessel. Remember that word because I want you to be the vessel of God in a different way. You're going to be the vessel of God and this vessel is going to be the one who fulfills all of these Old Testament prophecies. He'll be the son of the highest. He'll be the son of God. He'll have the throne of his father David. All of these things are Old Testament reminders that this one is the fulfillment, the long-awaited one. Well, Mary hears this, verse 34, and she's trying to figure this out. Even at 12, 13, 14, she knows how children naturally come. Verse 34, then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel, here's the third time the angel speaks. This is Gabriel. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. In other words, unlike Zacharias and Elizabeth, whose conception of John the Baptist was by natural means, the means of the conception of the Christ child is going to be a supernatural conception. And I love the word overshadowed. You don't need to turn back to Exodus, but just listen to it in Exodus chapter 40, the Hebrew equivalent word. Listen to it in verse 34. You remember, after God has given to Moses the law and told him how to construct the tabernacle and what materials to use in the building. They put together this tabernacle. They build it so that it's now set up and it's ready for God to come to it. And listen to what it says, chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud, that always represented the presence of God, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord, here's the word, here's the Hebrew word, it's equivalent to overshadowed, filled the temple. 
Verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested upon it and the glory of the Lord, here it is, filled the temple. You hear what he says? Hear what the angel Gabriel says? He's going to overshadow you. He's going to fill you. I'm going to do something in you that can only be explained as a miracle. You say, I don't believe in miracles. Then you won't believe most of the Bible. Because the birth of Jesus from the womb of Mary is a miracle that occurs because God overshadowed her. The word overshadowed is used three more times. It's used in the reference to uh, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and they were overshadowed. It's used in the book of Acts when the Apostle Paul, you remember God was doing special miracles in the, in the early New Testament church and when uh, Paul uh, and Peter uh, would passed by people, the shadow would over, their shadow would overshadow people and they would be healed. That's the idea. God is going to do something miraculous in her womb and we know what that is, don't we? That's why we're celebrating this year. That's why we're talking about the greatest story ever told. It continues here. Verse 36, now indeed Elizabeth your relative has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. Now listen, for with God, nothing will be impossible. Now this is not where I'm going to spend the rest of my time, but I just got to stop here for a moment. I am so thankful that I serve a God who can do the impossible. When it is his will, when it is his choice, God can do anything except what violates his nature. There's always somebody that says, well, if God can do it, some smart professor at our smart universities who said, well, can God create a rock so large that he can't lift it? And if he can't, then God's not really omnipotent. Duh. God can't do anything that violates who he is or his very essence, his very nature, dummy. By doing so, he would cease to be God. Excuse my language, dummy. I meant most honored one. <laughs> For with God, nothing will be impossible. Will you just turn back for a moment with me to Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter, 20, uh, chapter 32. How, how powerful is our God? Do you, do you believe he's powerful? Can he create an embryo in the womb of Mary that her body will take care of and uh, supply for and ultimately nurse at her breast? Can, can God do that? Uh, notice what he says, Jeremiah chapter 32. By the way, Jeremiah is prophesying that the people are going to be carried away into captivity, that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And God comes to him and says, Jeremiah, let me tell you something. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to buy a piece of property. Now, that's not, you know, the normal thing you would do. You'd say, well, Lord, I'm not even going to be here. There's 70 years of captivity that are coming. Why do you want me to buy a piece of property? If I buy a piece of property, I won't take ownership of it. And God says, I want you to buy that piece of property. And he buys the piece of property. He takes the two title deeds, one that's sealed, one that's not sealed. And he tells his secretary, Baruch, said, I want you to put these up and I want you to keep them. And you know what he was saying? He was saying, God's going to bring us back. We're going to be gone for 70 years of captivity, but the reality is God's going to bring us home. God's going to give us this land back. We're going to live here again. And that piece of property, that's going to be my piece of property. My family's piece of property. But notice what he says, verse 16. Now, when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, that's the secretary, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. So let me just stop here and tell you, I still believe God created in six literal days the earth just as we have, and it's because of the evidence, not in spite of the evidence. 
And beyond the evidence that convinces me that God created in six literal days, regardless of what the scientists want us to believe, the godless scientists want us to believe, if God can create Mary, can create in Mary's womb the sinless Son of God, he has no problem speaking and the world coming into existence at the sound of his word. I, I did something. And I'm going to chase a rabbit here for a moment, okay? I did something earlier in the fall. I, I set my Bible down and I said, I'm going to read my Bible as fast as I can read it. I can't ever do that normally. I'm reading my Bible and something interests me and I've got to stop and look it up and got to try to figure out what that word means and uh, how does this fit into the context and why is this here? And I end up doing some kind of a study and I get bogged down and I don't get where I'm supposed to be getting. So I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sit down with my Bible. I'm going to read it from Genesis 1 1 to Revelation 22 21. I don't care how many questions come to my mind. I don't know how much, it doesn't matter how much I don't understand at a given moment. I'm going to read it as fast as I can read it and I'm going to keep on reading and I'm not going to stop and I'm not going to look anything up. I was utterly amazed how many times the Bible says God created the earth. God, by his power, created the earth over and over and over. It's in the Ten Commandments. God created the earth. We're all looking at the same evidence. We're just coming at it from different points of view. And I'm coming at it from a theocentric point of view that God did exactly what God said. And I refuse to undermine the authority of Genesis 1, 1, or Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in order to try to accommodate something that's nothing more than theory. Why? Because God can do what? The impossible. How is it we believe in the virgin birth, but we don't believe in the creation of the earth? I, 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 I'm baffled. I'm utterly baffled. Mary says, for with God, nothing will be impossible. I guess so. He opened the womb of Elizabeth to allow her to have a son long after women were supposed to be giving birth to children, were able to give birth to children, and he's about to do in the womb of Mary something that no human is able to do. And none of us, if, we had, if there had been a natural conception, he would have had a sin nature. He would have been like all the rest of us. He would have needed a Savior. But the one who came in Mary's womb was miraculously created by God. And then I love Mary's response. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And thus sets in motion the story we will read on Christmas Eve Eve with our children about the birth of the Christ child. Jesus coming into this world to be the Savior of mankind. No one has ever been like him before. No one will ever be like him afterwards. Jesus is the unique son of the living God. Jesus is the God-man. There is the hypostatic union of these dual natures of Christ that makes him unique to all of us. He's the only one who could live according to the law of God and cross every T and dot every I. He is the only one that could never sin against God, whether in the letter of the law or the spirit of the law. He is the only one who could be taken to the cross and be nailed to that cross and take our penalty for sin on himself. Everybody else that goes to that cross deserves what they get but jesus came and took what we deserved on himself and god the son died in our place i say died he gave up his life in our place and yielded up his spirit and said it is finished to tell us die paid in full that's the incredible news. Do you understand what that means? Sin is no longer what's keeping you from coming to God. 
Jesus said, or John said about Jesus, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin, not of just the elect, takes the sin away of the world. So that anyone, the problem today isn't your sin. The problem is whether you'll believe in Jesus or you'll reject Jesus. That's the problem. We become children of God when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because you were chosen and you weren't and you were and you weren't. He's removed sin as the barrier keeping us from coming to God. And he says, if you'll come to Jesus and trust in him, you'll have eternal life. That's, that's good news. A lot of the Reformed theology I hear today is absolutely not good news. The good news is there is nothing keeping you from God except you believing in Jesus. Isn't that what John three sixteen and 17 says? You're condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the Son of God. Say, so I don't agree with that theology. Find another church that preaches your theology. We're not Presbyterians. We're not Reformed. We believe in creation. We believe that God created everything, including the baby in Mary's womb. The womb, the, the womb of a virgin. The womb of a virgin. Are you with me? I want to give you four things about Mary. Why she's an example to all of us. Number one, she knew God. She knew God. You mean a 12, 13, 14-year-old knew God? Listen to me, teenagers. You don't have to wait till you're 25 or 30 to know God. You don't have to wait till you're my age in your 60s to know God. You don't have to wait till you get to the end of your life to know God. You can know God right now, young people, young couples, young singles. You can know God right now. You can know God. And this was a woman who, even at her early age, knew God. How did she know God? She knew God, obviously, because her parents had been teaching her about God and the ways of God. She knew God because the priests, who when they weren't working at the tabernacle or the temple, they were out amongst the people pointing them to God. She knew God because she wanted to know God. You don't know God because you don't want to know God. He's not hiding himself. He wants us to seek him. If we seek him, we will find him. The problem is we're distracted by too many other things running in too many other directions to have time for God. Some of you don't even have time for Sunday night services. We don't know God. You know the evidence that she knows God is numerous, but I, I, I just have you to look at the the Magnificat. The Magnificat. That's the song that she sings after she has her meeting with Elizabeth and Elizabeth greets her and, you know, uh, Elizabeth says, you've, you've believed God and she breaks out into this beautiful song. It's found over in uh, chapter 1, verse 46 and it goes all the way down to verse 55. Here's your, here's your assignment for this week. You, you take the song of Mary. Are y'all with me? You take this song of Mary, the Magnificat, you, you take that song and you go get your study Bible out, get your references that are over here in the column or down here at the bottom, and you go look at all of those reference, references, and here's what you find out about those words that she sings. She's quoting from the Old Testament over and over and over and over and over. How does a 13-year-old girl know that much Scripture? Her parents have been teaching her. The priests have been teaching her. She wanted to know it. She didn't have a copy of the Bible like you and I have a copy of the Bible. We have no excuse for not knowing his word. 
She didn't have a copy of the Bible, but she memorized it. She put it in her heart. She put it in her mind. And when she breaks out into this song, she keeps referring back. This is what God says. This is what happened. This is what the the Old Testament says. And she's worshiping God. She knew God. Do you know God? Do you know God? That's the question. I... uh, I talk to people a lot about their spiritual lives. You can, you can imagine that. All of our pastoral staff do. All of us ought to be talking to people about their spiritual lives. You know, are you right with God? Do you know God? Are you living for God? Uh, you know, how, how, is, how is your relationship with God? A lot of us ought to be talking about that stuff. But you know, a lot of times I get to talking to somebody and it's like a deer looking in the headlights. What are you saying to me? You know what 1 Corinthians 2 says? It says, but the natural man, that's the unsaved man, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can they know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Do you know the message the natural man needs to hear? They need to hear the gospel. They don't need for you to get into an argument over where Cain got his wife. They don't need for you to get into an argument over some silly other detail where where there's a difference of opinion and nobody can, you know, we don't have full understanding of, of all that it means. They don't need for you to argue with them about that. They can't understand it no matter if you explained it to them in detail. The only thing they can understand is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. And if you'll believe in Jesus Christ, you'll have eternal life. That's the message they need to hear because the reality is until God saves them, they'll never understand. This is a closed book. This is a letter written to his children. What's difficult for me as a pastor of nearly 45 years is how many times I look into the eyes of believers when I'm talking about something from the Scripture and it's like talking to the natural man, though I know that they are the spiritual man. They don't know God. They don't spend time reading their Bibles. They don't spend time coming to church to hear the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. They don't involve themselves in a life group. They don't dig anywhere beyond just on the surface. They just sort of live on the surface. I'm out of hell. That's all I care about. And when you do that, it's no wonder you can't be the vessel that God wants you to be because God has big plans. God has big plans for your children. He's got big plans for you. He's got big plans for those that know him. He wants to do something significant through them. But that won't happen to you. Know God. She knew God. Secondly, she believed God. She believed God. When Gabriel says to her, you're going to have this baby, uh, you're going to have this baby, uh, in your womb, when, I, when the Holy Spirit overshadows you, when the Holy Spirit works this miracle within you, um, you know, she, she didn't do like Zacharias did. You know what Zacharias did? Zacharias said, prove it. Give me a sign. Mary asked a question, which is a reminder that there's no problem asking God questions. It's how you ask those questions. Do you ask those questions in unbelief, or do you ask those questions in belief? And Mary asked the question in verse 34, how can this be since I do not know a man? And you can understand the confusion, 12, 13, 14-year-old girl. She may not know as much about biology as Dr. Luke does, but she knows how children get here. And she is trying to figure out, I've never had sexual relationships with a man. How is this this baby going to happen? How is it going to happen? You can understand that. But the reality is that she never... She never doubted God. Even Elizabeth acknowledged that in verse 45 when she and Mary meet. In verse 45, she says to Mary, Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed is she who believed. Blessed is she who believed. Remember what it said about Zacharias? That he didn't believe. But here's a woman asking questions, and she's asking questions in faith. She's trying to understand She's trying to understand and she believed God. If this season God is asking anything for us, he's asking us to believe. 
for the sake of time. She obeyed God. That's number three. She knew God. She believed God. She obeyed God. I love that. You know what she basically says in verse 38 when she says, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. You know what she basically says? Basically, what she's saying is, Whatever you want, Lord, I'll do it. And do you realize how difficult this was going to be for her? Do you understand the significance of what she was going to experience? By saying, God, I'm willing to do your will, whatever it is, I'm praying for some young people and some young couples and some young singles. I'm praying for some people my age, you know, middle-aged. I'm praying for some people like that, that, that are my age to say, I'm going to believe God. I'm going to believe God. No matter what the price and no matter what the cost, think about it. It could have cost her her reputation all of the rumors about her, all of the things that would be said behind her back. It could have cost her Joseph. She didn't know how Joseph was going to respond. And if Joseph didn't marry her, then who would want her? But then she, she comes before God and she says, in spite of all of these things, Lord, whatever you want to do with my life, you're welcome to my life. I did that when I was a 16-year-old teenager. I have never regretted one day. I've not enjoyed every day. I've had some hard days. I have never regretted one day saying, God, whatever you want to do with my life, even if it doesn't make sense to me, even if I can't comprehend it, even if it's going to be hard. And I have failed many times, but I'm so thankful that I said it to God. Hey, I read a story this past week, and I'm almost through. Hang with me here. I read a story this past week about an 86-year-old lady who got baptized. Her name is Joyce Stamey. She's 86. She's a member of Liberty Live Church in Hampton, Virginia. She said, it was the best thing I have ever done. At an early age, she uh, was frightened by water, and consequently, she said she would just put off baptism, and she wouldn't get baptized because, you know, she was afraid of getting into the water. She was now, at 86, confined to a wheelchair but during COVID, she decided she needed to be obedient to God. And so they arranged to be able to baptize her at the church. They weren't able to do it during a main service, but they baptized her. This is what she said. All my life, I've been afraid to get baptized. So I just put it off and said, I'll do, it with, I'll do without it. But as I got older, I got to thinking about it, and I just decided to do it, Stamey said. I was, uh, I, I'm very happy about it now. I felt really good afterwards. It goes on, the article says, photos and videos of Stamey's baptism were shown during the next Sunday service, and nine more people, <laughs> you're sitting here, nine more people were inspired that they inquired about being baptized themselves after the service. And she finished out by saying, I would definitely encourage them to do it because it's something that they absolutely need. I feel a lot better since I've been baptized. It was the best thing I have ever done, and I regret not doing it a long time ago. Or you could just come to your own church. When we took Mrs. Not, not that screen. She wasn't in that screen. By the way, I like that screen. If you'd like to help us buy a screen like that... I like that screen, Andrew. We took Mrs. McCoy. We couldn't baptize her in a service. It was going to take us 35 or 40 minutes just to get her in the water and out of the water. Over 90 years of age. She called. She could walk with help with a walker. She called me. She said, Pastor, I need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And I said, Mrs. McCoy, you staff members, you were here. Am I telling the truth, sweetie? Mrs. McCoy said, I need to be baptized. I said, Mrs. McCoy, you need to obey the Lord. Let's do this. Her son was in the water with me. I think Phil Newberry, Phil New, what's Phil's name? Phil Newberry <laughs> was in the water with me. I was in the water. I think there must have been four or five of us in the water. We walked her down the steps, got her in the water, set her on the seat. And people were gathered right out here in front. And I raised my hand and said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And a 90-something-year-old lady got dunked. 
Hey, if you won't follow the Lord and believers' baptism, why should I believe you're going to follow him in the other areas of your life? She obeyed God, and finally she worshiped God. She worshiped God. That's the Magnificat. She worshiped God. Now, look with me one place, and I'm done. 2 Timothy chapter 20, verse 21. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Paul is writing to a young preacher about the people in his church. And you notice what he says in verse 20? But in a great house, there are not only, here's the word, vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. In other words, there's some common vessels that you use to do whatever needs to be done. You need to scrape up some dirt, you use it to scrape up some dirt. You need to put dirty water in it, you put dirty water in it. There's some common vessels for wood and clay, but he says there's some vessels of gold and silver. And listen to what he says, verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Here's the closing of this message. Mary wanted to be a vessel. She was willing to pay the price to be that vessel. And through her came the Savior of mankind. I can't explain that, you say. (laughs) That's why they call it a miracle. I'm not looking for a scientist to explain it. That's why they call it a miracle. But I can tell you this. God has a plan and a work that he wants to do through you. But you've got to come and be that vessel. And say, God, here I am. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. Here I am. If it means going to the other side of the earth, I'll go to the other side of the earth. If it means staying and working in a factory and being a witness in a factory, I'll be a witness in my factory. But God, I am what you, I want whatever you want for me. I surrender to you. And I wonder how many times when Mary was going through her life, I wonder how many times she thought about that statement. Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. How many times she must have thought about that. There needs to be a moment in your life when you say, not just Lord, save me, but a moment in your life when you say, Lord, use me.